Will you please turn with me in your Bibles again this morning to the Acts of the Apostles, the second chapter, where we are going to be looking together at verses 1 through 13. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, you can find that passage on page 1070 in your pew Bibles, or pages 8 and 10 in your journal copies of the books of Acts. And again, we want to remind you, those journal copies are available to you uh, on the table in the fellowship hall, so please make sure you grab one. One of the things that I have mentioned many times so far in this series of sermons is that the followers of Jesus and these 12 apostles were here in the beginning of the book of Acts, standing as it were on the precipice or on the very edge of a new era in redemptive history. It is an era that would be a time of celebration as the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forth into the world and does the glorious work of redeeming sinners in and through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is a time marked by grateful worship for the church of Jesus Christ. And yet, beloved, it's also a difficult time. It's a time, as I have said, of tension between what has already been accomplished in our complete restoration in and through the Lord Jesus and what is still yet to come. We know this tension ourselves all too well, right? Because we are, in fact, still in our own day living in the very era of redemptive history that begins here in the book of Acts. Jesus our King, has accomplished our complete salvation, our redemption through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And we now, though still dealing with this flesh, await the final consummation of all things. When Jesus, when the King of Kings, will come again and make all things new. When he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. When sin will be no more, and when what is mortal will be made immortal, when this flesh and its countless infirmities will forever be done away with, when the effects of the fall will be restored entirely, and every tear will be wiped away. But until that time, we are here, preaching the gospel of God's free grace in Christ, fighting against the flesh, fighting against our sin and the devil, looking to our risen, ascending, reigning king to equip us for that work. The text that is before us this morning really marks the beginning of this era in earnest. Prior to this, they were, as I've said, on the edge of a new era. However, after Jesus sends his promised spirit, the church is equipped to take the gospel to the very corners of the world. Last week, looking at the end of chapter 1, we found the infant church obediently awaiting the arrival of the 
fruition of that promised spirit. And we saw that as they waited, they were together. Not just physically present with one another in a large upper room, everyone sort of off by themselves to contemplate themselves, but they were really and truly together. They were in one accord, Luke tells us. They were unified in what they were doing and thinking and saying. And what was it they were doing as they waited for the promised spirit? Luke tells us they were praying. They were crying out to God together. They were praying fervently together. They were celebrating the wonders of the redemption in Jesus Christ together. Beloved, I hope that it is as convicting for you to see that as it is for me. We need this. We need to desire this kind of fellowship. We need to desire this kind of prayer. What a blessing is given to the church here. Not only were they praying together, but they were teaching and learning from the word of God together. We saw Peter, Peter, timid, fearful Peter, Peter, the one who denied even knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter stands up in the congregation and he does what the resurrected Christ had been teaching him to do for the last 40 days before he ascended in their presence to his heavenly throne to rule and reign until he comes again. Peter looked at their situation and then he looked at the word of God and he found application for the problem they now faced. What needed to be 12 was now 11. I'm not going to rehash all of that again this week other than to say that what happened next really leaves me in awe. He looks at King David in the Psalms. He looks at King David speaking through what he says is the Holy Spirit about the enemies of the king. And Peter then rightly draws the connection through King David and his enemies to King Jesus and his enemies. Namely in this case, a betrayer, Judas Iscariot. And pulling one of 36 verses in Psalm 69 and one verse of 31 verses in Psalm 109, he says that the enemy has received his judgment, his place has been left desolate, and now they needed to replace him and bring their number back to 12. 12 who will sit upon 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes. Taking God at his word, we see another important aspect of the Christian life. So they were being together. They were enjoying being together. They were praying together. They were learning and teaching together. And they were trusting God together. They cast their lots and the lot we are told fell to Matthias. All of this takes place while they're waiting upon God to do what he has promised to do. This is what the church was called to do at this moment of great anticipation of the next era of redemptive history. 
And beloved, it is in a sense what we're still doing today. Though now, of course, that promised spirit has been poured out, equipping the church for the great mission of the king to take word of his wonderful works to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the corners of the earth. It's that actual pouring out of the Spirit that I want for us to focus on this morning. And this is one of those places in Scripture that has caused vast confusion among believers throughout the story history of the Church of Jesus Christ. Primarily because of bad teaching, even more specifically, because of reading a text without a context and making it a pretext of something entirely foreign to its intended purpose, which happens all the time. And it really is a tragedy. However, I would argue that the text itself really needs no jumping through the proverbial hoops to make sense of. I believe it is clear, and I hope to prove that to you this morning. And in doing so, I want for us to see three things specifically as we consider this great event in the life of the Church of Jesus Christ in the text before us. First, I'd like for us to see the significance of what is taking place here and why it is taking place. You understand, God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. This is not a manufactured, random event that speaks to the magical things of God, as many today believe. There is a purpose to what God is doing that is very clear in the text and will become even more clear as we look at Peter's subsequent sermon next week. So significance and purpose, number one. Second, I would like for us to consider and see how the servants of the kingdom of God are being specifically equipped for the mission of their king. God is equipping his church for his mission. And finally, I would like to just briefly consider the results of that mission being carried out. And I believe we'll be continuing to look at those results for many, many weeks to come. So if you've not done so already, please look with me now at, again, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, and follow along as I read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Hear now the holy, inerrant, and infallible word of our God. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, 
visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said they are full of new wine. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity that we have to come and to sit under the preaching of your word. We pray that your spirit would attend the preaching of that word this morning. I would be able to speak clearly and accurately in a way that brings you all glory and honor. I pray, Father, for all of us that as we hear these words, that through the power of your spirit, we might be transformed by these words for your glory. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. As I already mentioned this morning, this really is a very significant, very weighty moment in the life of the Church of Jesus Christ. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the Church marks the beginning of the era in redemptive history that we still find ourselves in. It marks the beginning of the Church of Jesus Christ as it is equipped, as promised, to carry out the mission of the King, building up the Kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus Christ had come. That he had condescended to us. That he came down to us. He walked blamelessly. Without fault among us. He willingly embraced the death of the cross. Receiving upon himself. The full fierce wrath of almighty God against our sin. That he arose from the dead on the third day then ascended into heaven where he sits in the place of all power and authority at the right hand of the Father where we are told he now lives acting as our advocate. Beloved, it is the gospel and it is a message that has and will continue to shape the world that you and I live in. And if we are to truly consider the significance of this specific event, perhaps the best place to start would be with prophecy concerning this moment itself. There are many, I'm only going to mention a couple, and one of them we'll unpack next week. One such place would be Isaiah 32, verse 15. As I've mentioned to you before, in both the Gospel according to Luke and in this book of the Acts of the Apostles, Luke spends quite a bit of his time going back and understanding things through the eyes of the prophet Isaiah. This prophecy comes up a lot in Luke. It comes up a lot in Acts. And in chapter 32, Isaiah has been describing the desolation leading up to this very moment in time. As this pivotal, pivotal moment in redemptive history has indeed come. He says, Isaiah says in verse 15, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. This is the moment when the church of Jesus Christ will be built up and will grow and flourish as the proclamation of the gospel is taken by these spirit-empowered messengers 
to the very corners of the earth. The Spirit being poured out upon the church marks the fruitful building up of the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the message of that kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The other obvious prophecy to be considered here would, of course, be Joel's prophecy. Chapter 2 of Joel, verses 28 through 32. I'm not going to spend any of our time there this morning because we are going to be looking at it very closely next week in Peter's subsequent sermon in the second chapter of Acts. I would encourage you to read it this week in your own time of meditation and study and preparation for next week. The point is that this is a weighty, significant event in the life of the Church of Jesus Christ. It was prophesied by the prophets of old. It was an event that Jesus himself often alluded to as he promised to send his disciples the Holy Spirit. We also need to consider what this day of Pentecost was. Luke tells us the occasion that marks this day in the very first verse, right? He says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. From the outset, we see here that there is a significance to this very day, the day of Pentecost. It had fully come. You understand what Luke is saying? It had fully come. It was time. The anticipation of God's people was about to be satisfied. The time had fully come. Pentecost itself was the celebration of the first fruits or of the harvest in Jerusalem. It correlated with the Feast of Weeks that we can read of in Leviticus. It was one of three pilgrimage celebrations in Israel when many people who had been dispersed throughout the land made their way back to Jerusalem to take part in the sacrifices and the celebration. And it's important that we think through this. So it took place, the day of Pentecost took place 50 days after the first Sabbath following the Passover. That is where we can begin to see even more of the true weight of this very moment. The Israelites, following the first Passover in Egypt, wandered for 50 days before they came to the foot of Mount Sinai, where they would receive the law of Almighty God written on tablets of stone. You remember the story, right? I've brought it up many times. They were terrified by what they experienced there. There was thunder and lightning, quite unlike any thunder or lightning they had ever experienced. There were trumpet blasts ringing down from the mountain. There was wind and fire. Smoke, we are told, ascended from the mountain like a furnace. The mountain itself appeared to be burning. The people seeing the presence of God, coming into contact with the holy, were rightly struck with terror by what they saw. The manifest presence of Almighty God. 
We're told that the ground even shook beneath their feet. Now, I want you to just stay with me here. In the text before us, once again, 50 days have passed from the resurrection of Christ. The church is gathered more than likely again in the upper room. They are praying and learning and waiting and trusting together. But now, once again, God's presence is about to come. The Holy Spirit is about to write His law upon their hearts. He is about to prepare them to burst forth from this place and proclaim the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Look at what happens. Once again, the manifest presence of God breaks out amongst his people. Do you notice that there? It's similar. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. I want you to understand this is something they hear. This is a noise. This is a sound. You notice it's not a gradual breeze beginning to blow lightly, gaining steam, building up to a gale force wind. That's not what happens. There's something supernatural to what happens. They hear it. A rushing, mighty wind in an instant. But not a wind upon their faces, but a sound of the wind. The Holy Spirit of God breathes His Spirit upon His church. And they hear it. Much like they heard the thunder and the trumpet blast at Sinai. And it was not just an audible phenomenon. They see something too. Luke tells us there appeared to them tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were supernaturally equipped to not be hindered from taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Many have made the case that what we have happening here is even a reversal of what happened at Babel. When the people had begun to build a, a great tower up into the heavens and God looked down and he saw their work and he, he confused their language so that the work stopped. I'm not convinced that that's what we have here. But if there are hints of that, I can tell you it's only partial. God has not restored at this point the people to one universal language. That's not what's happening here. Rather, he's given them the ability to speak the languages of the other people so that each could hear of the amazing works of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own languages so that they could understand it. So that faith could come through hearing, hearing the word of God. Well, do you get a sense of the significance of this moment now? The king, the king of kings, is here equipping his church to carry out his mission of calling his children home to the kingdom. 
It's the second thing that we need to see here. Why this pouring out of the Holy Spirit? It's not to just increase the faith of the already faithful like so many believe today. This is about the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The king has ascended his throne and he now equips his church to preach the gospel. To declare the wonderful works of God throughout the world. And we see that world is represented here, isn't it? There were in Jerusalem Jews and proselytes from all over the known world who, who see and hear this event take place. The church spills out from this room into the streets and they begin declaring the wonderful works of God for all to hear in the languages of all those represented in there. And the crowd, many in the crowd are amazed. They ask one another, are not all these who speak Galilee? talked before of the negative view of Galileans. How did they learn these languages? They're an uneducated bunch. These are backward Galileans. How could this be? They were amazed. Luke tells us that in this crowd are Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome. Luke starts describing the national makeup of this crowd, beginning of those from the farthest east, working his way west and south. They were all here. They're all witnessing this event. They're all hearing the wonders of the gospel in their own languages. Oh, can you even imagine? We know the impact. Still going on today. Perhaps a more important question than whether or not we can imagine this is do you see the providential hand of our sovereign God at work here as he prepares the world to receive his glorious gospel of grace to transform? It's not just a random encounter with fate that has all these people here at this moment in time. You understand, this is the hand of God moving heaven and earth, as it were, for his glorious purposes. To call his children home to the glory of their Father and condemn those who are content to live in their sins receive the just desserts of those sins for eternity. These people were all brought to this place at this time for this very purpose. Do you see that? From here, the gospel will go on to transform the world we live in. Hearts of stone will be replaced with hearts of flesh. The barren land will become fruitful. The law of God will be written upon the hearts of his people. Servants and his kingdom. Beloved, I trust that you see the encouragement in that. 
Listen, I know that many of us, many of us struggle with our assurance in the face of what truly is often a very difficult life. We think that we cannot possibly ever measure up. We listen to the voice of our flesh condemning us even as Satan himself attempts us to get us to live as if we ourselves were gods. To live for self, to live for our own pleasure, yet Almighty God truly has given us everything we will ever need by his precious grace. Our redemption has been accomplished. Jesus truly has paid it all. Our lackluster performances, even our lives, have been made perfect through our union with Jesus Christ, the King through faith. And we have been equipped supernaturally by the grace of God to live this life for His glory. So I ask you again, do you see the mighty hand of Almighty God and what it means for your own confidence in the Christian God is not only sovereign, but that he's a God of providence. God has placed you here where you are, even now. It really ought to stagger us. It should fill us with the true hope of the gospel. You know, beloved, one of the dangers that I think we face in the church today is that we have sort of lost our sense of awe. You know what I mean by that? We have come to expect certain things because they are familiar to us or because they are passed on in our traditions. We have come to expect the Church of Jesus Christ to look a certain way and to be all about this surface level stuff. Stuff we're willing to fight for. Stuff we prefer. Stuff we like. Stuff we expect. And in so doing, we risk Losing our sense of awe. Not just the awe of God himself, but the awe even of his church. We make so many missions for the church. And too often we neglect the first one. In a sense, the only one. Though many others flow from it. Why did he pour out his Holy Spirit? First and foremost, beloved, he poured out his spirit to equip us to proclaim his wonderful words. To speak the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ in the places where we have been called to live and breathe and have our being. So I'm asking you, do you place a premium on this function of your service in the Understand, I'm not making the case that we have all been called to the exact same stations. There are some called to be ministers of the word. There are some called to teach, some to administer uh, countless other services. But we've all been called to be people of the gospel. We've all been called to celebrate our redemption in Jesus Christ. We've all been called to proclaim the truth of God's word. You are called and equipped for this work by the Holy Spirit of God himself. Beloved, we cannot waste a flickering flame of a life, our limited time on this earth, majoring in the minors. 
We cannot afford to lose our sense of awe. Do you see the primacy of the gospel at the center of all that we do as the children of God this morning? I pray that we do. He fulfills his promise. Again, this is a fulcrum point in Luke's writing, both in the gospel account bearing his name as well as in the book of Acts. From here, we see the mission of the church going forth into the world and we see its results. Which brings me to the third and final point this morning. So we've looked at the significance of this day on the day of Pentecost. We've spoken of the clear equipping of the church for the great mission of the church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. What is the result of that mission? Well, truly, it's twofold. One of the results is before us clearly in the text this morning, the response of foolishness to the message of the gospel. I've said many times, the gospel goes forth and it does the work of separation. It always does the work of separation. It's a sharp, two-edged sword. Dividing, as it were, joints from marrow. Some hear it and reject it out of hand as nonsense or as foolishness. And they're easy enough to pick out in the text before us, right? Verse 13, others mocking said, they're full of new wine. I want you to understand the foolishness of that remark. We need to see the foolishness of unbelief. The hand of God was all around these people. Think about it. They heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind, though no wind is said to have even been present. They saw the tongues of flame setting down on the heads of those who have come out into this crowd to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in languages that they simply could not have known. And it doesn't end there. They have heard the praises of God's people. They're hearing these things, knowing what has taken place in and around Jerusalem. They have undoubtedly heard of the empty tomb of Jesus. They've heard of his miracles, that he had healed lepers, that he had opened the eyes of the blind who were among them, that he had opened the ears of the deaf so that the, of the deaf so that they hear. That he had made the lame to get up and walk. That he had power over demons and even the wind and the waves and the weather obeyed the sound of his voice. They've heard these things. Clearly this was no ordinary man. This was and is the Son of God and now here is his church filled supernaturally with his spirit, doing what they should not be able to do. And unbelief takes it all in and says, I know what this is. This is drunkenness. Can you even imagine? And their unbelief condemns them in the face of the gospel as it does its work of separation. It's but one of the twofold results of the spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise God, beloved. It's not all unbelief. Verse 12 tells us some, some in this crowd were amazed to the point of beginning to think it through. Luke tells us they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this be? 
they see very clearly that this is something. This is not drunkenness. This is not a manufactured event to trick the gullible ones into belief. This is no magic show. This is something. Beloved, we will see next week once again, Peter, an uneducated Galilean fisherman, will stand up and address this mixed crowd with amounts to the first spirit-empowered sermon this fledgling newborn church of Jesus Christ and 3,000 souls. 3,000 of this Pentecost day crowd in Jerusalem will bow the knee before the throne of King Jesus. Beloved, I hope you see the glory here. So I ask you, is this Is this his kingdom? Is this the kingdom that you desire to be about? And what is your life here? Firmly between the already and the not quite yet. Will you gratefully bow before your king and be about his mission, proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to the very ends of the earth? We too, We'll sit under the preaching of Peter's sermon next week when we are blessed to be gathered again as the Church of Jesus Christ with our fellow servants of the kingdom to offer up praise that should be our joy to give. Will you give it? Let's pray.